Hello, uh, welcome to Achievement Unlocked. Thanks for coming. Now, I was talking to the session producer, uh, superstar exec producer Antonio Gould at the back there uh, yesterday about uh, educational games. He was telling me about uh, Duolingo, which he's been using a lot of to uh, master his Italian. And for him, even though he'd spent years and years and years making educational games for kids, this was the first time he'd ever actually personally used an educational game and thought, wow, this is really having a beneficial and meaningful impact on my life. And I thought that was quite powerful, really. And it got me thinking about the game that, for me, was the first time I really used an educational game. And uh, it was actually one that helped me with my typing, because when I was at school, I learned on a manual typewriter, writing ASDF, JKL, semicolon, space, for just filling pages with that. And I never wanted to do my homework. And I sort of did it, and I could touch type a bit. But... It wasn't until I played uh, The Typing of the Dead, uh, the uh, mod of House of the Dead 2, where they replaced uh, your gun with a typewriter and all of the zombies uh, come at you with uh, words that you need to spell accurately on their chests that uh, I actually found my uh, words per minute coming up, my accuracy coming up, and my overall typing uh, becoming a really useful skill. So... Uh, <coughs> I think for, for this session, really, uh, we just want to challenge that assumption that, that learning is boring and that games are fun, because learning is fun. Uh, a great educational game is intrinsically motivating, like mastering a system, mastering knowledge, like mastering yourself, like anyone learning anything, that is a joyful experience. And games in and of themselves are all about learning. So learning is fun and games are learning. You know, this, this is what we're about. We're talking about delivery now, how you execute on that well. Uh, and it's not easy, uh, which is why uh, it's great that we've got such a talented and expert and uh, above all broad panel here to talk to us today. Um, I should say as well that you know, this is going to be about breadth, this is going to be about the, the nuts and bolts, practical case studies, war stories, things that people have learnt through experience. Um, but we can't, due to the constraints of time, go into too much depth. Um, but rather than save all your questions to the very end, we are going to have a point in the middle where you can jump in, ask questions, please challenge our panel. I mean, I can say that because I don't have to answer anything, so please challenge our panel. Um, they love a hard question. So uh, before we uh, dive right into it, I want to give each of them a chance to sort of introduce themselves and uh, tell you a little about their expertise and where they're coming from. So uh, let's start with... Uh, Martha, Martha Henson, she's a freelance digital producer and the co-director of Leg Up and Edugames Hub. So Martha, in your own words. Hi, so yes, as um, Trevor says, I'm a freelance digital producer. I tend to specialise in mobile and uh, kind of um, games projects, particularly games for education or engagement for the cultural sector. So I've worked for, um, at the moment I work for the Science Museum, I've worked with people like Tate, um, lots of kind of museums. I worked for... Um, about five years at the Wellcome Trust as the multimedia producer there, where I um, commissioned uh, a number of different games, kind of set up our strategy in the area, particularly Haiti and Axon, which were very successful, which I did with Phil, who will introduce himself in a second. Uh, we had millions of players on that, and that kind of really, um, I guess, opened up to me the opportunities for, uh, for educational games in that sector. Um, I've also helped run Leg Up, which is the London Educational Games Meetup Group, and that is a monthly meetup group which now has over a thousand members. In fact, I think we're we're pushing eleven hundred at some point, which is kind of amazing and scary. Um, 
the video for one of my games is showing, so I'm somewhat surprisingly, but um, that's High Tea, uh, one of the games we made for Welcome, Welcome Trust, Welcome Collection, which is about the opium wars in 19th century China uh, and has, last time I checked, over 4 million plays. Yeah, it's still, 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 still going. Still, still, still going. And uh, hopefully that's been kind of instrumental in getting people to think about, uh, well, Britain's kind of uh, empire and colonial history and the sort of very dubious things that we did. Uh, and actually, so out of um, Leg Up came EduGames Hub, which is a, uh, a online resource and sort of like an online magazine for um, educational games makers. Great. Thank you, Martha. So, Phil, you're the co-direct, uh, creative director and co-founder of Preloaded. This Tell us true. a bit about this that. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, so I'm, I'm, uh, I run, I guess, the, the creative product from Preloaded. So... Um, director, I, I look after the design team um, and I look after the art team as well. So Preload has been going for about 14 years. Um, we set up in 2000 and probably from the, from the very beginning we were doing lots of games for um, mainly for broadcasters. Um, lots of work for the BBC, picked up some work from Channel 4 and that really kind of was the backbone of our business and from then we began to branch out and work with different museums and all, all of the organisations we work with generally had a kind of, um, kind of like an educational remit, so a kind of public service kind of educational remit. Over the years, we just kept kept kind of like honing those skills and, and really kind of like working on our kind of like method and approach. And the last two or three years, we've we've moved from the informal learning space into the formal learning space and doing lots of work with um, organisations, um, an organisation called Amplify, which is basically trying to re-revolutionise the way um, the curriculum is taught in the states. Through a completely new digital curriculum, and we're the one of the major suppliers of the games for that for that product. Um, we, I should, I should just say that we actually we kind of do much more than just educational games. So we also look at the training space, and we're also um, kind of very active in the health space as well. Um, so I'm, I'm, I guess my, my experience is quite broad. Games of purpose is what we talk about doing. Thanks, Phil and Angela. You're a senior lecturer at the English School of Education, University of Roehampton. So our, yeah. our academic. Um, yeah, I, and that's where I currently work. And before that, I was a teacher um, for a number of years um, in South London um, primary school and worked in other schools um, uh, around South London. Um, I, a few years back, um, was involved in the Nestle Future Lab Design Challenge, um, working with uh, students of design um, technology uh, to create a, a game to support children to uh, engage in collaborative storytelling. Um, that led on to um, research into uh, which is my PhD research, uh, which uh, looked at the way alternate reality gaming um, in a classroom setting might support children's um, literacies. I'm particularly interested in children creating their own uh, games. Um, and uh, but my uh, my main input into this panel is my recent involvement uh, in the uh, as an educational advisor. Um, for Teacher Wants to Read, um, which is a game to uh, support children's early reading. There it is. Um, and it was created by the Osborne um, Foundation. And we had a, a very exciting team um, to work with on that. Um, and really, I'm just here to talk about, you know, from, from an edu educator's um, point of view, um, you know, that experience of working alongside very talented um, game designers. Okay. Great. Thank you. And Chris, tell us about what you're doing at BrainPop. Yeah, good afternoon everybody. My name's Chris um, and uh, you may have been expecting uh, Ben Barton from Zondel. And instead you've got me, I'm a rainy day Ben Barton. Um, uh, so I hope I'm a, a half-decent substitute because he's, he's a terrific chap. Um, but, okay, so BrainPop, we make digital animations to teach kids concepts across the curriculum. Uh, we're a global company. I run the UK division. Uh, we have offices in New York and uh, South America, uh, France and China. 
um, and we localise our animations and digital resources for those particular curriculum for those companies, uh, for those countries, the, the languages and the culture and that kind of thing. Uh, and a big and fairly recent addition to the BrainPop service is um, something called GameUp. And uh, this is the idea that we, uh, we discovered that the second most popular search term on our service was games. Um, the first being, well, you can guess what the first one. We're dealing with uh, children aged 7 to 14. Um, and uh, it was, there was a huge demand. So we knew that there was an opportunity to surface great games, uh, great learning games. So we have the audience of millions of children and schools around the world. And there are games publishers and creators and owners of game IP that want to reach that audience. And so what we do is we align those games with our uh, proven teaching resources. And we put, put them together so you have an incredible learning experience. Um, so we have the gameplay aligned with the teaching resources that we make. And GameUp has been a huge success for us. And the kids have racked up literally millions of hours of gameplay on GameUp. Um, and in America, for example, where GameUp was launched, first of all, um, it's now uh, uh, it's attracting yeah, millions, of, millions of hits. Uh, and we're in about one in four schools in America. So the, the, the traffic opportunities for GameUp partners is, is enormous. So, um, yeah, it's fairly recent to us, but it's, it's just been a massive success. Great, thank you. So, so that's our panel. So let's dive straight into some questions. So, Phil, starting with you, what, what, what in your view, fundamentally makes a good educational game? Um, so I think, I think the, the, the most important thing about a good educational game is that it's a good game. So fundamentally, it needs to be a really strong product that people enjoy playing. And I think if you think about actually what makes, what makes games good for education, it's really just... You know, games are designed to be engaging. And, and the thing that's really powerful about games is you can design different types of engagement. <clears throat> so you can design games that engage you for like two minutes, three minutes, four minutes. You can design games that kind of engage you kind of over multiple sessions, over much longer extended like playtimes. And it's that kind of being able to design a game to sort of suit different needs and different, different kind of like behaviours mm. is something that I think is really fundamental to games, games being a successful like learning system. Um, so I know you, you talk a lot about kind of wedding the, the game mechanics yep. to, the, to the educational outcomes. Yeah, so we, I mean, we, we, we're very passionate about trying to make the learning the doing part of the game. So we, we, never, we don't really want to be in a situation where um, the game is kind of like just bolted onto the content. The content itself needs to be the, the kind of the game. So we sort of say like, you know, learn, like we want to be learning by doing. So we're trying to um, really kind of embed that content into the core of the game. And we do that in, we do that in two ways. Um, firstly, we try and make the mechanics reflect the content itself. So the mechanics and the dynamics of the game are actually embodying the content. And then secondly, we try and, um, we try and align the, the, the winning strategies of the game with the learning objectives of the, of the um, project. So by being good in the game, I will, be, I will be learning the content itself. And by mastering the content, I'll also be mastering the game. So the, so the, kind of, the play and the, the strategy is completely aligned with the actual learning objectives of the product. Sure, I think, I think that's so important. Um, could you give us some specific examples of like, some of the, the ones that you think have done that particularly well? Yeah, so I mean, I could show you our examples. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'd expect so, um, why don't, can, can, I show, can I show Tyrant now? Is that, is that a good, good yeah. opportunity? So, um, we, we've, um, so, like I was saying earlier, we've been making games for Amplify for about two, two and a half years, and we are working from core standards. So, they will, they will say to us, you can make a game about any piece of content in the core standards. And we'll then kind of go through all those core standards and try and find the best content that we want to make games from. And one of the things that we were really excited about doing was making an ant game. So I, I love Sim Ant. I, I just think it's such an interesting area. So we kind of began to explore kind of like what, 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 what makes ants interesting? Um, what, what's the kind of, what are the kind of the, the um, valuable learning outcomes from 
from exploring um, ants themselves. So we began to look at ecosystems and genetic mutations. So we built a whole game that was really sort of demonstrating how ants work and the ecosystem that surrounds them. Behold the underground metropolis of the leafcutter ant. Here they'll hatch flying and larvae and set off to establish new nests. Sound the alarm. A scout from a nearby colony is claiming this leaf is their territory. Soldier ants must be sent to remove the threat. So what, what we're teaching here is, um, there, there are about four or five different learning outcomes from the whole product, but essentially we're trying to establish there are different castes within, within an ant colony um, and how they work within, 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 their, within the colony itself. So each caste has a different function. And we're, using, we're, but we're kind of like demonstrating those functions through what the player does. So the player, the player can control scavenger, um, forage ants which go and collect leaves. So that's a fundamental part of the game. Like it's by playing the game, you're understanding those, those, um, those, those, those functions of the actual individual castes. The main, the main teaching within the game is about the genetic mutation of the ants. So you're trying to build towards the, um, the, uh, the, the nuptial flight that happens at the end. And once that nuptial flight happens, there's a genetic mutation, which then adds you, gives you ability to play the game in a slightly different way. So my, my ants might suddenly be um, stronger, or they might be able to um, collect more, or carry more. Or, and so the actual kind of like the genetic mutations within the game itself are improving the way you can play. So it's fundamental to the actual player experience. And then the key thing that we're also teaching is about pheromone trails. So as you could see in the, earlier on in the game, you're basically moving ants around. And as you move them around your network, you're leaving pheromone trails. So pheromone trails are the, are the trails that ants follow. And, and the, the stronger those pheromone trails are, the quicker the ants move along those lines. So to master the game, you have to understand that you need to create really strong pheromone trails that ants move, move through um, and move along. And you, can also under, you have to understand that different ants will disrupt those, those pheromone trails. But the actual winning strategy is really to understand how pheromone trails work, the function they have within the cast and it becomes kind of like fundamental to you succeeding in the game. So we're kind of blending everything together. So there's, never, there's no learning for the sake of it. It's absolutely fundamental to the core game. And all of the game rules and systems are based on bringing those, that content out. That's great, thank you. And, and same question to you, Chris, because you see so many games coming through. Mm. Um, Brainpot, what, what makes a good educational game? Well, we, we, we make our own games. Um, the, the substantial amount actually do come from other, so people like Preloaded, you know, that have their own IP. Um, you know, we, we, they, they place our game within our portal and then we play, we make that available, maybe a portion of that game or a level to the audience, to the, to the schools that we deal with. Um, in terms of what makes a good game, it's, it's what, what makes a good learning game is actually a fairly complicated, you kind of know a bad one when you, I feel like I know a bad one when I see it. It's like there are some games, to, to be a good learning game, it has to have elements of complexity. So for example, the further you get through the game, perhaps the more complex it gets. But, but from, in my opinion, a bad game might just get faster. Yeah, so Tetris just gets faster, and therefore it becomes more pressurized to complete Tetris, and, and it's an incredible, incredibly addictive game. But in a learning environment, especially one that's, that's being managed by a teacher, um, you, know, you have to have depth to that game. What we have, um, and I brought some of these along, is we have a rubric um, that we use, and this is essentially our internal evaluation so if, if, if one of you guys brings a game to me and says, we'd like to talk about putting this on game up, um, we would run it through this internal editorial process where we would look at various aspects of the game. Um, uh, everything from the mechanical stuff like, does it playing an annoying tune that the teacher can't switch off? Because in a classroom, I mean, at home on your iPad, it's fine. You put your headphones in, you're not bothering anyone. In a classroom, if you can't switch that sound off, you have 30 kids playing an annoying tune for an hour. 
um, disrupting each other and disrupting the class. And that even at a very simple level, you have to consider that element of building your game. At the other end, the really important stuff for me is that games, uh, because I mean, theoretically, you could read a textbook about pheromone trails and how ants build colonies. That's what we've done for hundreds of years in, in classrooms. What a game can bring is depth around uh, softer skills. I think soft skills is a terrible name, but skills like problem solving, critical thinking, group work, collaboration. These are skills that are harder to measure. Um, and I think when you're looking at a game rather than just an exercise, I was speaking to Phil earlier about a drag and drop game that, that calls itself a game, but we know in our hearts it's, it's no more depth than noughts and crosses. Um, so it is about uh, evaluating a game and understanding that does it, does it uh, allow children um, a complexity of experience with that game that they may not, they wouldn't get from a textbook or a video or whatever. And so it's, it, it's that depth of experience that I think is really key. And um, apart from the gut instinct, you know it when you see it. Um, I mean, in the last session, I was in games like Civilization and SimCity and games like that were brought up, which are incredible learning experiences with huge complexity, but also equally huge publishing houses making these games. It's not, it's not easy to make games like that. Um, so, uh, yes, we have a certain set of standards that has to be met, both mechanical and pedagogical, um, because the, the thing with a game in class is a, a teacher in a primary school has a set of objectives they have targets to meet. They have Ofsted coming to, to judge them on whether they hit those targets. So uh, it, it came up that, that risk in classes is, is difficult for a teacher because why would they take a risk of bringing a game in? And something I'm hoping we'll explore in this session is uh, overcoming that risk, helping teachers understand why gaming can be so incredibly powerful in class. So I think teachers get it. You don't have to encourage children to play games. That's easy. But encouraging teachers to embrace what games can bring into the classroom is, is a bigger challenge by far. I think, um, sorry. Yes, yeah, so no, please. I think there is, a, there is a danger that games are just perceived as a more engaging way of just teaching something that could be done in a textbook. Right. And I think games, actually, the affordances of games are um, you know, give, give you know, the designer um, the ability to be able to introduce complexity over time and actually make very complex things much simpler to understand. Like the way you design a game is that you would, you would and this is like whether you design a learning game or an ordinary game, you'd be dripping feeding features in, in with complexity so the on-ramp is very gentle and you're dropping things in to allow you to um, increase the complexity and depth of the experience over time. And one of, the most, like the, one of the most important things that's happening in games right now is the kind of exploration of um, adaptive difficulty and trying to build dynamic learning environments within games. And that's a space that is so complicated but so interesting. Like the idea that the game can actually understand where my competency and adapt and tune the difficulty to me is something that you can't do um, unless you're you know, in, in, in the classroom. And actually that's where I think games are different. It's not about replacing teachers, but it's about using what games are really, really, really good at um, to complement traditional teaching. And I agree with that. And I think also um, that, you know, for children to have agency within such a kind of rich, um, you know, rich context uh, for learning that games, games provide, um, for there to be that kind of flexibility and that the, that the challenges, uh, the children kind of feel that they are, you know, that they are kind of setting the pace um, and, the, and, it, and the game's kind of growing with them, um, I think is, is, is really, really important. And I, and I think, you know, uh, we sort of heard in the last session that, that all games, you know, provide really, you know, Lots of games, whether they're designed for classroom use or not, can provide really powerful um, learning opportunities. Um, I think as well as agency for players, um, something else which is uh, 
which again was touched on in the last panel, is um, the ability for teachers to be able to uh, adapt and, um, and tailor the game as well, um, based on their understanding of the class and the understanding of the, of the, of the setting. Um, and that the game, the, the, ped uh, the pedagogical kind of underpinning and the educational content is something that resonates um, with them in the classroom um, as well. I think that's something I'd just like to add to that. Great. Well, I, th I think that's some really good kind of definitional, you know, what, what makes a great educational game. But I'd like to talk a bit about actually like making, making the game. So what's, what's the process there? What's the team? How does, how does that all fit together? I think starting with you, Angela, if that's all right, because I think your role on, on Teacher Monster is quite interesting. Um, if you could just talk yeah. a bit about how you fitted into the team. Yeah, I mean, um, I felt very, you know, very fortunate to be part of the team um, developing uh, Teacher Monster to Read. Um, myself and my colleague, Alison Kelly, who's also not unable to be with us today, but um, she was also one of the educational advisors on the team. Um, and uh, we were um, brought in as educational advisors um, by the Aswan Foundation, um, to create uh, a game which will support children in the, the early stages of reading, and in particular one, uh, one uh, particular part of that, which is phonics, um, which is essentially the, 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 the stage where children need to learn that particular sounds map onto particular letters or groups of letters. Um, and um, we kind of... Uh, we, we were educational advisors um, on that, but what was very powerful, I think, about... Um, the team was that from a very, very early stage, we were brought in um, to talk about what were the aims, what were the objectives, what could this game do, and more importantly, what could this game not do? Um, you know, we, we couldn't do everything. And I think having those discussions really early on, um, that became kind of... Um, you know, something we kept returning to really as the game, uh, you know, developed over time. Are we, you know, are we meeting those uh, objectives that we, we set out at the beginning, or have they changed? And if they've changed, why? Can we give a rationale? And um, that iterative process has been really powerful. Um, and we had some really uh, excellent designers from Popleaf as well, um, John and Burbank, who we've worked with. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so lots of problem solving along along the way um, during the game. Mm. So if, if you're making an educational game and, you know, if someone's making one and they, they want to find an educational expert to bring in, you know, who's got that domain knowledge, what skills should they be looking for in that person? Um, I think it's not... Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm interested in, in game design and it's something that I'm really fascinated by, but I don't think that's a prerequisite at all. I don't think you need to have that, that, that background, um, especially if you've got a very strong team with, a, with a, a, you know, everyone's got their own different skill sets, their own subject knowledge. Um, I think really, um, it, you, you, you know, the educational consultant does need um, very sound subject knowledge in the area or the content uh, of the game or the, you know, the kind of um, curriculum content if it is directly you know, linked to school, school settings. But also, m more importantly, um, the, the pedagogical sense of you know, what a game can do um, and, what, and how that game is going to marry with... Uh, you know, with, with the content. I mean, why? Why a game? You know, um, and I think as long as what's really key is the communication, and I think that's certainly something that I've learnt during the during the you know the course of working with um, with Popleaf on this is that because it was an iterative process, we set out the aims, but then we kept revisiting them. We we were given the opportunity to look at prototypes. Um, so I think a, a good educational consultant would be. Um, would be able to kind of engage in kind of in problem solving really and also have a kind of flexibility of thinking that actually everything that you want 
you know, you would really want to, from the game um, is not necessarily... Um, you know, you have to be able to adapt and actually take on some of the design points and make some compromises along the way, I think. Um, so I, I don't know if just add mm. to that brief. Mm. I think a smart move would be you could spend 1,000 man-hours mm. building a game that then goes into class and yeah. fall, falls on its arse, right? Mm. So um, in terms of iterative building of the game itself is if you can engage with a school or a class or, or a, a teacher um, that can actually test in life situation because the children will give you the most brutal feedback Absolutely. you've ever had in your life, right? Yeah. They will tear it apart because the children are almost exclusively kind of, uh, uh, to a child, aware of games, know what games are. They play from an yeah. early age. They I'll start playing, playing I Spy with their parents in the car from you know, a very early age and onwards it goes, right? So, um, yeah, putting it in front of children, letting them rip it apart and give you that feedback and does it work? And they will tell you what works as well because they can be extremely positive when something yeah. works for them. And I think that's important. Absolutely. Do that regularly, yeah. go back. Yeah, and, and that's something that, yeah. that was built into the process with Teacher Wants to Read and was very, very powerful. And actually, even though I don't know, you know, um, how, how, you know um, if this is a common thing, but, but certainly, you know, although it might seem it's you know, quite expensive perhaps to kind of do, do prototyping and do testing all the way through, actually, uh, it meant that um, we could save money by not producing prototypes because from the testing, it became really clear that some things weren't needed, um, that actually things weren't going to work at a very early stage. So it's actually worth doing it um, at, at the beginning. And I'd also add to that that I think having a mixed, mixed team at the prototyping, as, uh, not prototyping stage, at the testing stage, I also think is really valuable. So, for example, we were there um, as the educational consultants, but also the game designers. And the game designers were looking for slightly different things during the testing process than we were. Um, and so, you know, looking for, 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 for um, elements of the game design, you know, any bugs and elements of the game design that would seem too slow and, and, and the pace of it and all sorts of things. Um, and we were looking, um, you know, with our teacher eyes on thinking, OK, you know, what is it that this child is struggling with? And is the game supporting that? Is it scaffolding their learning? Um, if not, what do we need to add to it? And we had a discussion afterwards. And I think that, you know, having that kind of mix, uh, the, the testing was powerful. Yeah. Martha, I know, sorry, mm. um, I know that uh, Welcome, you, you did a lot of kind of testing and evaluation and getting kind of data and metrics back from, from your games. Like how, how useful was that for you and, and how would you kind of structure that process if it you could useful. have a magic wand? Yes. Um, well, I guess I mean, we, that kind of splits into two parts. So there's the, the, the testing that you do whilst you're developing a game, which you, know, you kind of think of like the, the formative evaluation that might take the form of um, kind of user testing sessions, it might be something you send out and ask for feedback, and all those things are like incredibly valuable for, um, for for developing the game and making sure you're on the right track. And sometimes that can take you in a completely different direction from where you thought you were going. But you know, if it's working for the audience and it still keeps those core objectives in mind, then you, I think you need to be open to that. Um, but then actually, the the work that we did, particularly on high T, was evaluating it after it launched. And it was just one of the most uh, informative experiences I think I've ever had, and particularly around games, um, it, both in sort of challenging some of our assumptions and also in um, like reassuring us that we'd, we'd been on the right tracks. Because I think, when you, I think when you create any kind of digital project that you then launch, there's a sort of, there's a sort of moment where you've, you've sent it off and then you realise that you don't, you don't know what's happening at the other end. You can't be there in the homes of everybody that you're trying to reach to see what they're doing with it. And um, even if you've uh, built in lots of analytics, which can be very, very powerful and very useful, that teach you all kinds of things about 
um, not just you know how many downloads you'll get, but also what paths people are taking through the game, what level they get to before they drop out, all those kinds of things. They can be really important, but often they raise questions as well. You're like, well, that's really interesting that everyone got to level four and then quit, but why? And that's, that's really hard. Yeah, how do you know? And actually, what we found with high tea that it, it wasn't always that difficult to find out. Um, there were kind of four main areas for that. So we looked at analytics, but we also sent out surveys with the game and put people into a prize draw, just offering people the opportunity to win a £100 Amazon voucher turned out to be hugely motivating. We had about 1,100 responses within, I think, uh, three days or something, which is, you know, it's a suspan- substantial sample size. Um, and so we, we asked those people various questions about what they'd got out of it and what they'd understood and uh, found out some really interesting things about people actually kind of they're, they're empathising with the, the, the characters doing nefarious things in the, in the game. And then we were able to kind of explore that a bit more because we'd asked for people's email addresses to follow up to do telephone interviews. And even just doing telephone interviews with like 10 people was really kind of like helped us understand how people were using it. The, the kind of the other aspect of that is by putting things on, um, in this case, portals, games portals, we can track all the commentary on it. And again, that's uh, for, for the game that we, we released, you know, you get a lot of comments about the game players, like, well, I don't like the way it does this, or you should have created sandbox mode and all that kind of stuff. But we also got a lot of people discussing the, the subject matter and talking about the way that they were, they were using it. Um, so I think just being, being able to, to track all of that stuff really helps. And if you're, I think, if, you know, in, in an ideal world, you'd be able to respond to that as well with the next development of the, the game and actually feeding that into what you do next. So I, th- I think that's a really interesting point around sort of, you know, games as a product thing you make and launch and then you can sort of evaluate and maybe learn from for your next game. But then there's, you know, games as a service, things that you have multiple releases for. Um, Phil? Can I pick up on the, on the expert question? Sure. So, we, we've, so we've, made, I mean, we've made so many games now and, and, you know, about neuroscience, physical science, genetics, um, ecosystems, fractions, literacy, such a broad range. And we've worked with so many different experts. And I think there's, there's a couple of ways... Um, there's a couple of options. Sometimes you go to teachers because they understand the, you know, the pedagogical approach. They understand like what you're trying to teach. The challenges of teaching fractions, like what what does a, what does a, like an eight year old, how does their how, how does their mind work when they're eight, and how, how and, and what is the kind of like, the complex stuff around fractions? Or you'll go to a content expert. So when we when we were making Tyrant, we went to um, an, an expert based down in Bristol. We've we've just made a, a game about the immune system, and one of the one of the things about content experts is they bring with them so much knowledge, and I think. They almost to the point where it can sometimes be quite unhelpful. And what we're doing is we're, we're constantly trying to distill the content down into something that you can make a really strong game out of. Like how do you kind of get, like, distill the essence of the subject into something that's engaging and will kind of like, will be understandable? And you know, we've been working with an um, immune system expert who, is, who has so much knowledge. And like, I, you know, I spend an hour talking to him and I won't really have understood hardly anything. And you're trying to distill it down into something that actually you can make a game out of and base some game rules on. I think that's one of the one of the big, biggest challenges is when you're trying to when you're sort of interviewing people or phoning them up or, and just trying to work out who you're going to work with, they need to be able to explain things you know succinctly. You know if you can't explain the, how the immune system works in in two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, you're probably not going to be able to make a good game out of it. Um, I think uh, you also have to be quite open. I think with we all know that when you're when you're doing a kind of a game, particularly it's around a science subject, you, you end up having to. You know, simplify it to some degree or maybe add on features. So for in Axon, we were creating a game about um, fetal brain development, which is actually simpler than it sounds in terms of the game itself. But we added power-ups, which obviously aren't something that were really in the game mm. and uh, really in, in the science, and then kind of used that as a jumping-off point for talking about what, where the science was and where it wasn't. And I think if we'd had an expert there who'd been like, you know, 
well, you can't do that, that's not in science. Mm. It, it would have been really difficult, but actually they were really open to that and they kind of helped us um, shape it and make suggestions. I think it's about knowing what, what's important and what's not important and mm. just tuning your objectives so you know that when you're not covering that particular piece of like science, for example, you're, 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 you're making an informed decision on that. So yeah. like you were saying, like, is the jump point to, to sort of further... Um, further study or like is this is this product just about inspiration or is it actually about is it going to be used for assessment or is it just inspiring people or is it about engaging people it's like what, what, what's your what's your actual objective and that's really important well i think that goes back to earlier what we're saying about what what makes a good game is it's it's all of those things but also it's about achieving the aims for that particular audience mm. and in that particular context and and that can vary as whether it's in the classroom or or it's not or yeah. you know you're trying to reach adults or kids and all those kinds of things mm -hmm. so um, making that process work for those. That feels like a good juncture to, to break for an initial round of questions. We'll have, we'll have more at the end, so, so start thinking. Uh, in, the, in the next half after this, we're going to be talking about um, sort of commissioning and what you need to think about up front, and also commercial exploitation, so maybe hold questions about those. But uh, uh, who wants to go first? You need to wait for the microphone, though. I, I have a question about when you're developing, and, and in particular when you're testing games, do you take into consideration different cultural differences? So if you're developing a game that you think is going to be primarily used in the UK and is pretty much linked to the UK curriculum, and you do your testing around that with kids in UK schools, do you also consider, well, this is a core element that most schools in most countries are going to use or, or need? Do you take that into consideration and do you think, well, if we develop it in this way with this kind of imagery, it could potentially be used to a wider audience? Yeah, I, we, part of what we do, a lot, a lot of what we do is localising educational resources for different cultures and languages and stuff. And I think that um, if we make it, there's certain commonalities that just are great gaming elements that translate whether you're in Egypt or Korea or Oxford or wherever, yeah, there's, there's certain core things that, that, that can remain. The great thing about gaming is it can translate across borders without too much fuss and bother. But if you're, if you're making something specifically for the UK curriculum, let's say you're, using, uh, you're doing a financial literacy game, teaching kids how to manage their money, uh, you would obviously use the symbology of the UK, pound signs and pence, right? But if you wanted to then take that game over to America, you'd have to change that to dollars and cents. And that could be quite a lot of work to go back and re-engineer all of your assets into other currency symbols, let alone the spelling. And the, I mean, something we did is when we, when we bring over assets from America, they tend to use baseball a lot as their metaphor. It doesn't really work in a UK school, right? So we changed that to cricket or whatever, football. So, I mean, that's, that's a huge amount of work to do that. So you have to be very serious about if you're going to carry it across borders or you have something incredibly universal, like you saw a clip of, uh, of Dublocks there, which is um, from Huda Maths, who is one of our game, game Up partners. And that's just a square block that you travel around a grid. And that could work anywhere. But you do need to be careful culturally that the stuff that surrounds it, whether it's teacher support, that kind of stuff, curriculum mapping uh, and so on, that actually you, that, that, that stuff doesn't either offend or is nonsensical or uh, is actually plain wrong, um, especially in the, in the language and the symbology that clashes with what a teacher's actually using outside that game. Because that game's not going to be every lesson for every day of every term, is it? It's going to be a, a, a section of their teaching day. It's going to be that. Or maybe the kids go home and use this game, where there is no teacher controlling how, what impact that's having on their learning. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's not an insignificant thing to localise your game. And I would, from the very beginning, consider if you want to sell it internationally, 
to, to consider what graphics you're using and how what metaphors you're using in your graphics and symbology and language and let alone the curriculum stuff which can be very different yeah it can be just, just to reiterate that i think we um we do we don't have a huge amount of experience in localizing educational gains that we have done a lot of work for people like disney where you know, the localization requirement is huge and i think you if you can address it up front you, you know and you know you, you you end up developing games that where localization becomes easier um so i think it's just about kind of knowing up front before you start have you ever had a situation, though, where you've had to make a choice and say, okay, well, if we use this kind of imagery, it could work really, really well in the UK, and the testing shows that that could be, like, the, the way to go. But if we soften it a little bit, it could have a wider appeal internationally, but actually it may not be as effective locally. Have you ever had experience of that, and have you had to we, make that? We had, um, is this being recorded? It's being recorded, it is isn't recorded. it? <laughs> um, we, did, we did have a... I'll just say it anyway. So we did have an instance with um, with Amplify where the, the audience, Amer American school kids, are different to UK school kids. And we had a um, a game came up with a game called um, it was a working title, but it was called um, Repro Hero. And you were basically um, a, you were sperm, and you were trying to fertilise an egg, and um, in a, in a cow. Um, and it was a it was a great it was, it was kind of like a racing game, and, and you'd like you'd, you'd be using kind of like. Um, uh, mucus to sort of speed up, and it was very, it was it was graphic, but it was very good game, and um, and we actually um, and they they canned it because they just didn't think that the kids would would um, would appreciate. They'd find it. They were they they were kind of getting kind of they were kind of getting grossed out by it, and they were getting embarrassed by it. Whereas the UK testing we did, they were loving it. So, any other questions? Yeah, um, could you cite an example of? a uh, great discoverability strategy that was applied to a new game uh, or a new app uh, that was launched. So something from a marketing and sales standpoint that allowed an app to break through the clutter of a million plus you know, apps on iOS, for example. I don't know about the App Store because ours was actually a PC um, game, a free PC game. It will be released on the App Store at a later date. Um, but we had a, a, a small, um, you know, um, publicity budget, um, and it was publicised um, solely through Twitter, Facebook. There were some emails to um, schools as well, um, but uh, we had uh, someone really fantastic and very imaginative um, working with us on that, Danny, and um, she thought up competitions, uh, you know, getting schools to to you know design their own monster. Um, was there a dress your teacher up as a monster as well? Maria? There was a dress your teacher up as a monster as well. And there are all these sorts of um, you know, creative ideas that got people and children engaged in it. We had photos sent to us from Twitter uh, via email as well. Uh, photos of you know, children with big walls of their monsters that are up in their classroom. Um, so I think with, some, you know, with somebody who's got some really good creative ideas um, that will get children kind of and, and teachers kind of excited and getting them to feel like a community that play the game, that worked for us, and our full, you know it's still growing. We've got you know the, that's that's really taken off for us. So mm. I think that's something that people often neglect is mm. you know when they and this is something that comes up at a leg up meetups all the time. It's like how do I how do I break it? How do I break out in the app store? How do I do that? You know what's the, what's the magic thing that I can do? And there's there isn't mm. one. You know it's it's it's, it's sort of luck. It's about creating something that Apple particularly want to promote. It's all those kinds of things. It's making sure you have all the kind of um, you know, it looks right and has the right screenshots and it's tagged well and all those kinds of things that you're clever about that. 
Um, but I think people often neglect the fact that like traditional PR, mm -hmm. um, you know, going direct to your audience with things. And I think, you know, it's the kind of sometimes the non-online, non-digital marketing that can actually be like, more powerful. Great. One more question in this bit and then we've got to move on. Yes. Hello, uh, my name is Claudia and I'm from the University of Portsmouth and some people may or may not know but Portsmouth has quite low educational attainment in terms of GCSE results and um, we also have a low number of children going on to higher education and our, uh, my, my, my colleague's job is to work with local school children to um, inform and inspire them about their educational opportunities um, and so I go to people at the university sometimes and say we should be using games. And a couple of the responses are, um, why? Uh, too expensive. And I say, we're a university. We have games designers, students. And one response is, they're not good enough. And I just wondered, uh, using your expertise, how I can go back and argue with those points. <laughs> good question. That's, a, that's a great question. Um, and all three of those points are very valid. Um, I think there's actually, there's an underlying motive here, right? So those are very, you know, it costs too much. Well, that's not true, right? For a start, there's millions of free games. The games on our BrainPop site are free to play. You know, the, I, I think the cost thing, it could be like... Oh yeah, of course. It would, it, are you talking about talking to schools and why they're why you'd like them to use it, or are you talking about students, graduates? Sorry, could you just use the microphone? Thanks. Sorry, this is me. Not to diss my university colleagues. This is me talking to my fellow university colleagues, saying we should be creating games. Right. Uh, we don't charge for our services to kids, so everything we do is free. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. Everything okay. we do is free. Um, but you know, we should be making um, games to try and increase. You know, to and get what, our message across. And what, what, are, what are these graduate? What are they studying? We have games, computer so games, games designers, games. students, undergraduates. Yeah. Right, okay. And we you're saying departments. we should be making Why should they be making games? Sorry? Well, I, it's just... Um, I to never, help improve... Well, either we should be going to companies and, and commissioning games, right. and then I'm told that's, we don't have the budget for that. That's, uh, that's too right. expensive. So okay. how cheaply can you get a game made by someone like you? Um, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> and also, if we have... We're a university. We have... Um, computer professors, game designers, professors who are also professionals. Like, why can't I run a competition to well, get my undergraduates to design a well, game? The thing is, it's like, and then I'm told they're not competent enough, and what, I'm like, well, I well, don't know. Something that, <laughs> that I would suggest you would do, and obviously Phil would be and, and Martha possibly better at, about commissioning games, but investigate areas, schools that have done incredible things by converting existing. Xbox and PlayStation Nintendo materials into class. There's some great case studies. So I'll give you two examples, right? Write this down, right? So you've got, you got, um, you got Dawn Halleybone in London that worked uh, with Nintendo on brain training in her school. She got a big box of, of DSs, gave them out to the class, and she used, uh, uh, what was that, the Mr. Some, uh, one of those? Yeah, right? Yeah, so, and she, got, she had incredible results, and then the media got involved, and it was a huge, big story. Uh, she was even in the Nintendo advert when they were selling DS as a learning tool. And, and she had great results, right? And she's become a bit of a, a, a beacon of, of how the, it can be successful within a, a, norm, a normal school. And then you've got someone like Ollie Bray up in Scotland who used uh, Guitar Hero to form a whole term's worth of study. So you're using the game as the basis not to teach music, or well, that's a big part of it, 
to engage your children with writing stories, you know, narratives, literacy, uh, building their own games, creating their own movies, marketing. I mean, there was just a huge range of things that they built that was all measurable and aligned to the Scottish curriculum. And again, huge publicity, huge you know, uh, improvement in standards for those children, as well as engagement. Uh, and they, in Scotland, have gone on to do a huge load of work with games-based learning. And it's kind of stopped now because the government, as it does, has kind of cut funding and stuff. But it's interesting how, if you, if you just want to go, look, the games work, you, could, you don't even need to actually make your own games. You can say, let's take something that already exists, like Minecraft, find a school, and see if we can work with them to blend that into the classroom. And then you'll see what the effect is and the positive outcomes. And then that might make a more persuasive case to say, can we do something like that but of our own? Does that make sense? But I think, I think it's really important that you know, we're talking about two things here. We're talking about games games-based learning, so using games to teach a particular thing, so like using the affordances of that medium to actually explain or teach or make you think in a different way, as, alongside games as an engagement tool to get kids interested in, in, in learning. And I think that's very different. I think, you know, all the stuff that Derek and, and Dawn and Ollie were doing was much more about using kind of like the pull of a game to provide the kind of, the, the, the kind of focal point for a lesson or a term that kind of brings people around it. And they're, they're getting very excited about, you know, doing art posters related to their band that they're taking on tour in France because it's all about guitar hero and it becomes the context to learning rather than the learning itself. And I think you just the question I would ask you, and this isn't this is rhetorical, but you know, what's your objective? Is it to inspire people to go on and make games? Sorry, this is like a self-help thing for me. Thank you very much. Um, my job is to inspire kids yep. to think about going to university or to continue their studies or to think about their educational options. It's also to provide information about that. One way I would like to do that is through the medium of game. Yep. So rather than just going in and doing a presentation in an assembly or putting a, you know, a static article on a website or writing an article for a magazine, I want a game that teaches them about how they they choose which university to go to or, the, the, you know, I'm a kid, I like maths. I want a game where they can find out about what they, what they can do if they learn yeah, more yeah, about I maths think. and get a maths qualification. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of want a game to further my work and yeah. it's, a, it's about yeah. informing and inspiring them. Mm -hmm. um, okay, and, so I'm, and I work in the university and I kind of like, I want to convince so, so my manager to so pay let's, for it. Let's, <laughs> let's, talk, let's talk after this. Mm -hmm. okay. yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, great. So, yeah, just on the, one of the points you raised earlier brings us on nicely to... Um, talking about when you do need to commission a game, like how much should you spend and how do you find the right agency? And I know uh, Martha's got uh, some opinions. <laughs> I've been trying for about the last three years to get people to fess up about their various game budgets. And I'm trying and failing, I should say. And for, for lots of reasons, I think it's very difficult for people who are commercial to say how much they've spent on things. It's very difficult for public bodies to uh, admit to how much they, they spent on certain things. Although for most public bodies, they sort of have to, to let people know um, if they ask. Um, so I did some research for a publisher recently who wanted to know like, what was the absolute minimum they could spend on a game. I think they were hoping I'd come back and say, 20p. <laughs> you can do whatever you like. And I think I did, I did a whole blog post on this a couple of years ago. There are, there are ways of doing games on a low budget, but the, the thing you don't want to try and do is to do a game that you know, has one of kind of like preloaded styles or any of those games that may, you know, probably end up on Brain Pop and try and do that for like... 5,000 quid. There's just no point. You know, if you, if you won't get high production values, if you have that much, that little money, try something different. Try a paper-based game. You know, try a live game. There's all kinds of different opportunities there. Um, so the research I did for the publisher showed that 
the absolute minimum you could possibly spend was to get like a a, a reskinnable game from an agency who'll, who'll do that and who'll just like you know reskin an existing engine and that you might be able to get for like about five thousand or so maybe a bit more than that but if there's no flexibility in that all you're doing is getting a reskinning of an existing game and that might work for what you want but if you want it to really sort of you know embed the learning and be about the system that you're teaching that's probably not right i mean the the but you know something like axon sorry phil I, I have told this for other people as well was it was about 60 to 70 k um it wasn't that much yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, high T was less, but I think it shouldn't have been. We probably should have spent more money on that. I mean, what, what tends to happen is you tend I to have... I think Axon was 45. No. Okay. <laughs> it's definitely more. Are you, are you siphoning off money from the budget? <laughs> <laughs> Busted. <laughs> the stage. No, Mark, no, no. Are you including sure. marketing in that? No, well, budget? the thing is, that actually, the, the distribution strategy, which we've written a lot about, meant that we didn't really do any marketing, but it was right. still very successful. So if you want to hear more about that, I can tell you. But um, <laughs> basic, basically, I think, you know, you, you're, we had a workshop yesterday when I was trying to encourage people to, like, up their budgets, and people thought that that meant that they could, they were, you know, that the 20K was about the right ballpark. No. Like, you know, to do these kind of high production value games, and even if it's just in kind of one scenario, like high T was, even though it had 10 levels, you're looking at kind of like 40, 50K as an absolute minimum, and that's without any kind of marketing budget. That's just to get it built. The more money you have, the better. And I think, you know, the more you can kind of add in some slack and contingency around that, it will be better, and the more time it will give you in order to develop it. It's also worth saying that, the, you know, you're, if you've got lots of objectives, it costs more money. I mean, if, you, if, you know, with, with Axel and high T, you know, I, I think, you know, I mean, high T... Has been played by millions of people, and like you think about actually like, the pence per engagement is really actually okay. really actually um really quite but we quite had, like, low. You know, our objectives for that were like make people aware of the opium mm. wars yeah. um, and give them some sense of when it happened and why. Mm. It wasn't complicated. We didn't expect to turn people into experts. Something like mm. teacher wants her to read much more involved, has much stronger objective. You're really trying to like teach people something. You need to spend a lot more time and money on and it. I, and I would say, like putting use, I mean, I, I completely agree with use testing, but it, it makes things very expensive. If you have to like break production, you have to do testing, you have to, have to iterate that into your product, and that happens like two or three times, it makes the whole thing very expensive. But you can, but it might save money in the long run. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. That's so, the I mean, thing. so if yeah. you know, if, if it will make mm. a better product, definitely. Mm. Mm. Uh, Phil, we were talking a bit earlier about how you know you're saying it's sort of twice as hard as just making a game, and you wish you could just make games because they're easy and you've got to make something fun. Yeah. But uh, I mean, we, we often we don't do a lot of just pure entertainment games, but when we do, we just like ah, just all you need to do is make it fun. You know, it's actually not that. I mean, it's challenging making fun games, but it's not that hard. But when you've got a rule set that you can't change, you know, so like I can't I can't add another cast to the ants because there are only three, so I have to I have to balance that game in that way. I can't add a new a different type of pheromone trail that would mm. helpfully balance out, you know, the other the other um, the enemy ants. So you end up working with very very kind of tight constraints, and I think one of the things that we try and do, because we've got a lot of experience with this, is we we really think through all of the challenges of the game before we even start building it, and actually really make sure that the content is really aligned with the mechanics. Because if you get that wrong, and then you have to make tweaks later, you end up kind of ruining the integrity of the product, and that's the thing which um, can just make a really bad educational game. So we're quite short of time, so I'm going to move move on. Um, Chris. Uh, I've got, I've got a game, um, and I want to make some money from my game, <laughs> and it's educational. Um, that's easy, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I can't answer for independent uh, games makers making games and putting them out there, and do they make money or not. I, I assume some of them do, and most don't, and that's the way things tend to go. Um, from our point of view, uh, we, we would act as a, a discovery engine, uh, a place for teachers to come and find great learning games that 
have been through our filter. So it's within our, uh, we need to make sure that what we put up there is the best that we can, that we've been offered or that we can find or that we can create ourselves. So therefore it's been through theoretically the BrainPot filter and our teachers have approved it and it's great. And, um, but you can't buy the games on BrainPot, right? It's, it's purely marketing essentially. Um, and getting your product out in front of an audience that may, you may not be able to reach schools, whereas we can. So that's the purpose, kind of a game up to help kids and teachers discover really terrific games that, that we've, we've kind of said, this is really great, you should play it. Mm. Um, uh, so I, I don't know if I can answer that question <laughs> about you've made a game, how do I make money off that game? I can, uh, in terms of marketing and discoverability, I think that's one of the key things because there are loads of great games out there. Um, and, you know, I, I think certainly part of it is if you can build, a, if it's a mobile game you're doing, and I know probably most of you will be thinking this needs to be available on the mobile platforms, is building relationships with the App Store people is really key. Um, because if you can get featured, and this is a no-brainer, but if you can get featured on the App Store, um, then, you know, it's, it's an incredible boost um, to your ability to actually turn around revenue and once you're in that top 10 and then you may stay in the top 10 for quite a long time because it's, it's, there's only a few places people will go to find your, your game and something, I think something like 60% of games have never been downloaded off the App Store, off the iOS App Store, right? Um, which is horrible. You know, always man hours that have been put, put into it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think there's, there's a huge amount of uh, research that's been done on this because it's something that everybody is concerned about, but in, we would be a non-traditional place that, that, that games makers, learning games makers may not think, oh, let's go and see BrainPop, because we make learning content for schools and not necessarily the first place that games creators would, would, would think. So partnering and building relationships with services like us, uh, like Google or Apple that, that are going into education in such a big way, uh, and also some of the more traditional publishers like Pearson and Oxford University Press and People like that uh, that are making schemes for schools in maths and literacy and whatever, um, and talking to them about perhaps if there is a way that through their systems that they have these, you know, e-commerce systems with schools and they're on their procurement books and they're on their frameworks and they have kind of pedagogical approval and they have trust relationships with schools. If that's the market you want to go for, then it's worth probably talking to some of those people about how you can make money via. Uh, they want their cut, but they have that reach. Sure. which you would struggle to get in schools by yourself. So I would, I would recommend partnering and building relationships with distributors in the educational space. And there are a lot of them, and they're very good at what they do, generally speaking. Sure, and I got, opening up to the rest of the panel, really, any other sort of opportunities that you see for people right now in, in, the, in the educational game space? Feel free to jump in. I'm really torn on this because I, you know, I want to be a cheerleader for games and stuff like that. And yet, of, of all the people that we have at Leg Up and my colleague at Leg Up here, and maybe she can help me out on this, um, I don't think there's anyone that we've met that is sort of making a huge amount of money out of it. There's not many, you know, within the kids sectors we heard at other sessions, like the whole, you know, kids um, sectors, you know, it's already difficult enough. And then educational games is a subset of that with all the kind of difficulties around, you know, the, the various models, whether they're appropriate, particularly in-app purchases, whether you could do that for an educational, you know, for a kids game, let alone an educational game, makes it really, really hard. Um, so whilst I, you know, I want to be like, everyone should do games. Games are really great. There's kind of a lot of time where I just kind of go, run away. <laughs> this is not, you know, you're not going to make any money out of this. And you have a lovely project. And I'm, you know, it's, I'm thrilled that you're so passionate about it. But the chances of this being a sustainable business for you are really, really small. 
And I think also, you know, just finding out from, from schools what the need is, you know, and, and from, from teachers and from children and, and sort of having those kind of conversations pre or pre or in the really early stages of design, I think, is um, really key to making sure you're making a good investment of your time that you actually know that you're, you, you know, you, I mean, it's hard. It's very, I'm not saying it's, it's easy to, to do that, to get a sense of, of where these difficulties in teaching lie. But, um, but I think that, you know, doing that from the start, um, and also, as you say, you know, you're getting the experts in um, at the early stages, but then, you know, talking to them through the prototyping stages, I think can, um, teachers recognise quality, don't they? They, they recognise quality and they recognise when time's been spent researching what, whether, what they do in schools. And I think that's really key. That does it actually... Teachers are very good at teaching <laughs> and they want the games to, to um, be pedagogically sound and to match, you know, to, to, to complement the learning that's already going on in classrooms. And I think, you know, I know if, that's the holy grail. I know everyone wants, wants to kind of find that, you know, that, get, that game that's going to do that. But all sure. I'm saying is just start those conversations early, contact as many people, have those discussions before going into, you know, full into design. That's I think right. the market in mm. America... Sorry, just, sorry. Just, we just need to go to... Any final comments from you, Phil, just sorry. before we... Uh, do I have one minute? Do I have one minute? I'll give you five seconds. Okay. I mean, one, just to kind of just just to kind of crystallise the the challenges that, that we face. We are a B two B business. We make games for publishers who then who then who give us money and they publish them. We've got a um, a game we made for Channel Four Education called Ten Sixty Six, and we own the IP on that from June. That gets paid. That gets played thirty five thousand times a day um, ex- online now. And we are now thinking, okay, so thirty five thousand people playing that game every day. We own the IP. That we've got, we've got access to the portals where that game is. We can put banners on it that can that can then click through to it like an app. And we we are seriously considering not doing anything with it because we don't think we can make the game, you know, well enough to then and to actually make any money from even those thirty five thousand people who actually play it. So I think it's hugely challenging. And I think, um, yeah, I don't want to end on a on a low, but I think it is That's all right. It, making making games is it, hard. It, it is hard and it is making expensive. Making educational games is also very hard. It will take twice as much money, twice as much time. Um, that's true. Um, but, you know, there are massive opportunities. There is that potential to change people's lives. It is the most effective way, one of the most effective ways we found to actually teach people things. Um, a generation of gamers has grown up and had kids. Another one is growing up now and having kids. You know, we, you know, as Dylan said in his keynote, we are at that you know, inflection point where it's going to go either way. And uh, you know, I think everyone here does sort of believe that there is a way forward and it is an exciting time to be doing this kind of work. So I've uh, got to end there, I'm afraid, but uh, we can always continue the conversation in the bar later. Um, so thank you to all our speakers, Phil, Martha, Angela, Chris, who stepped in at the last minute. Uh, thank you to Antonio, organised panel, and Chana, who executed it. Uh, Thank you to all the volunteers at CMC and thank you guys for coming. See you later.